Deviant Women. Hooray! The podcast where we like to talk about different deviant women from history and mythology, mythology and fiction. We haven't talked about anyone from mythology Not yet. yet. It's only episode Have four. Oh, that's right. Plenty of time. And literature. And literature. And contemporary women. And contemporary women. It's unfortunate. I don't feel like there's a word like contemporary. It's not an owl word. It doesn't fit with mythological. Historical. Oh. Literary. Can, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah. You don't know what you're talking about. Contemporal. Contemporal women. Yep. Some made up word. Well, this week, I keep saying week, but actually we do this fortnightly. Yeah. So this fortnight, this fortnight. we're going to be talking about a contemporal, more contemporal woman. Yeah. We're no longer in the Victorian era. So That's right. Yep. Those of you who have been like, oh, more Victoriana. That's right. Oh. So talking about things that happened in the 1800s. We have moved on this week and... If you did listen to our last podcast, it was about which obviously you were. We know you clearly. We you've know you done did. That. Last time we were talking about Bertha Mason, mm, one of ca- our favorite um, reworked, reimagined literary heroines, a fictional character from um, Charlotte Bronte's Jane Eyre, reimagined by Jean Rhys. In White Tiger SOC. So we spoke about that last week. If you haven't listened to that, and if you also happen to be an undergraduate in an English topic at university, (laughs) can can I highly recommend you go back and listen to that? Because it might possibly make you your tutor's favourite person in the world. Maybe. It would be so weird if, like, people who taught undergraduate English, particularly who taught those two texts, (laughs) like did a podcast about those two texts and imagine knowing that one day they'd be marking essays about those two texts. <laughs> imagine if that happened it would be so weird it would be weird wouldn't it imagine we actually finished up our last talk discussing a more much more modern author than Jean Rhys and I know I know now because sorry I'm just gonna I got really just excited fine, interrupt. I was right. Go for I it. was right I said oh I have a feeling I know who you're talking because uh, I've just jumped actually jumped ahead yeah. But we ended by saying that an author was going to rework the life of Adele. Yes, that's right. So Adele in Jane Eyre is Rochester's love child. Yeah. Not Grammy Award winning <laughs> Adele. <laughs> no, no, not Grammy Award winning Adele. That's a different person. That's a different Adele. No, but there was a much more modern author who had started writing a novel um, about Adele, a follow-up novel, which would have sat beautifully as a little trio of books if yes. you had been able to read through from Jane Eyre to Wise Like SOC to said novel. However, the author in question sadly, tragically died before she ever wrote the novel. That's right. And the author in question is the author we're going to be talking about today. I love how we keep our subject a mystery. Well, I was about to say during it until you the, just but, did that. But during the podcast as though we don't name the episode of the podcast and provide a short description oh, yeah, of the podcast so with the with the person in question that's but we're right. gonna just keep up keep, keep up, up that pretense, pretense. <laughs> fine you are reading the person's name on your screen you know as who we, is. you know who it is. is but we've built up the tension anyway <laughs> it's angela carter angela carter that's great so angela carter. yeah again the song the angela carter song <laughs> The Angela Carter song did appear slightly earlier today in our conversation yeah. when you out there in podcast land weren't listening. And I think it sounds like it makes it sound much like a sort of detective agency, Angela Carter. I can imagine her as a 1940s bombshell detective. Angela Carter. Yeah, I like it. It's and good. And the mystery of the forbidden phoenix. The Forbidden Phoenix. You are very good it at this. It wasn't a Forbidden Phoenix last time. I it wasn't. It was, it was a magic idol or something along time. those lines. Um, so the Angela Carter song, we'll move on from that. Uh, who knows, it might come back again later. But she is our deviant woman for this episode. However, to be perfectly honest, Angela Carter herself 
as an individual, was not particularly deviant woman in the same sort of sense as some of the other women that we've spoken about. Like biographically, I'm not as familiar with her biography as you are. but Because I, mean, I just read, read it. You just read it. <laughs> she read it, led something of a, a relatively average life in the sense that she grew up with parents. <laughs> <laughs> in the sense that she and didn't like, cross-dress and travel around Northern Africa. Yeah, and yeah. she didn't talk to dead people. She didn't talk to dead people. No, that's right. And she that we know of. And she didn't die in a house fire and fling no. herself off of the ramparts. No. But I think that a lot of her intellectual work was pretty deviant in its time. Like I think absolutely in terms of the, the intelligence circles that she was kind of working with, and there were definitely some resistance to some of her ideas and we'll probably talk about this in a little bit but um, particularly her ideas about sexuality and pornography and morality and stuff I think was really ahead of her time yeah absolutely and a lot of her fiction because she was predominantly a fiction writer although she did write some non-fiction as well but a lot of her fiction her characters especially her female characters are very subversive she undermines a lot of feminine archetypes she Mm. she tears those to shreds and I suppose that's sort of where this idea of her fitting into our theme of of deviant women fits because she was very much pushing back against norms of femininity as they had been written into fairy tales and myth and folklore and all these sorts of basic stories that underline a very western idea of culture And the culture that she grew up in, uh, she went back to a lot of those stories and rewrote them with a bit of a, here we go, feminist, revisionist mythology. I was going to say lens. Oh, no, I was going to say mythology. Because what I was going to say is, I was just going to say she wrote feminist, revisionist mythology, which is a term that we, I'm pretty sure we used last week. We may, Um, may well have. If we didn't use it, then we should have. But I'm quite sure that I brought it up or one of us brought it up. Which basically means uncovering the stories of women of the past or from um, folklore and from our cultural stories and putting them in the center of their stories, making them the highlights of those stories instead of being in the margins, but also, and importantly, not just portraying them as victims in their stories. And Mm. this is something that Angela Carter does, is that her women aren't simply victims sometimes they're victims yeah sometimes they are complicit yes. in their victimhood and she critiques that but her women are 3d versions of the 2d women of the past you know they're, yeah absolutely they're completely rounded out with all of the flaws and ugliness absolutely of femininity yeah. it's not like she's just gone i'm gonna take snow white and make her a super amazing heroine she's gonna be so strong it's not like the the strong female characters that is a word that has been in feminist circles, I think, in the resurgence of a lot of yeah. these kinds of stories Do you know what? in the last few years. This is this is a thing about Angela Carter that I actually think is so wonderful about her, is that you're quite right. There has been that sort of pushback against strong female character. Oh, it's another strong female character. Where is something more than that? And Angela Carter was doing this long before... She was doing this 30, 40 years ago. Long before this became something that people were actually getting up in arms about, you know. Mm. There was a time when it was like, we just want to see more women and we just want to see them as characters. We want to see women kicking ass. Yeah, whereas... And we all need a good Buffy the Vampire Slayer in our lives. She was very (laughs) important. Having a kick-ass... I know how formative Buffy was for you, Lauren. (laughs) I know. It's fine. She was Um, yeah, well, that's so true. <laughs> anyway, look, we'll talk about Buffy another time. We'll, oh, we'll yeah. get around to Buffy. We should talk about Buffy. Oh, yeah. All right, we'll get around to that <laughs> one of these days. But this was definitely something that was inherent in Angela Carter's uh, fiction, but also in her view of the world and her view of feminism as well. Because when she was writing a lot of her work in sort of the late 60s, mm. 70s, there was a brand of feminism that was coming to the fore that – Angela Carter refused to get on board Absolutely. with. Absolutely. She, she, she didn't call herself it. She didn't identify with feminism as it existed at that time. Though I think that retrospectively we can probably apply yeah. the word to her work as, and, her, and her ideology. But Yeah, and as she got older, I think she 
started to really embrace feminism as something but only once she had sort of found her own brand of feminism and didn't have to subscribe to anybody else's rules about what being a feminist meant i think this is one of those ideas that puts angela carter really ahead of her time absolutely yeah because in that time in the late 60s early 70s a lot of the feminism that was emerging was kind of anti-sex and Mm. because of the the whole idea that for for example pornography and sex work those are reinforcing the patriarchal male dominance of women or the patriarchal male gaze of of women as objects um and angela carter was really at the forefront of that feminism that said no pornography doesn't have to be about patriarchal dominance of women Mm. this can be empowering or not even necessarily empowering but just more complicated yeah and she actually one of her famous works is about the ideology of pornography um it's the sadian woman and it's a work she wrote which was directly in response to uh, the pornographic work of the Marquis de Sade from the late 1700s, early 1800s. Mm. Who, for those of you, I'm sure most people know the Marquis de Sade, but he wrote some pretty fucked up stuff. He sure did. <laughs> really violent, yeah. sexual. Absolutely. All sorts of horrible Which rape is strange. And because things. we were both just discussing how in high school drama we both studied Marat Sade, <laughs> which is a strange play. Actually, I didn't. No, I did it in first year university. Oh, did you? I did it in high school. That I did it like in year weird. eleven high school, which seems like a very strange, sexually violent, disturbed thing. Yeah, it is. I to mean, make a as, bunch of teenagers study. Even what as an eighteen-year-old in first year, it was like, "Hello, welcome to university. Here's here's some here's sexually Marat violent Sard. porn." <laughs> Thanks. Great. Opening my eyes. But and I was really, for me, it was like, oh, lovey Boem, this is it. I'm here, man. <laughs> yeah, sure. Well, Angela Carter, I don't think she responded that same way. But so the, the Sadian woman that uh, she wrote, is a, it's a nonfiction book, and she basically takes apart the work of the Marquis de Sade, and she talks about the idea of a moral pornographer as Pornography being something that can work for women as much as it can work for men. And it was, I think, quite a revolutionary thing at the time because, yeah, a lot of that sort of feminism was pushing back against things like pornography. And it was pushing back against a lot of the sort of ideas of femininity that Angela Carter uses in her fiction. Mm, And uses and both celebrates and critiques. Absolutely, yeah. And I think that there's also not just sort of that hardcore brand of feminism of the 70s that Angela Carter pushed back against. But she also didn't go in for, and I guess revisionist is sort of another word we can use here, she didn't go in for that kind of feminism that was about bringing to the fore ancient mother goddesses and matriarchal cults and finding a place in history where women were the sources of power and Mm. trying to sort of bring that back to the fore. She thought that was a very misguided concept. Like sacred feminine. Sacred feminine. She was very much against that. I don't know, was she against it or does it just not interest her? Well, let me read you this. Okay, yeah, Yeah, let's do it. Let's hear it. um, So from the Stadium Woman, this is a small snippet that I think will give you a very strong idea of just what Angela Carter thought about archetypes of women and about stereotypes and the stories that um, we tell about women. So this is a quote from her preface. If women allow themselves to be consoled for their culturally determined lack of access to the modes of intellectual debate by the invocation of hypothetical great goddesses, they are simply flattering themselves into submission, a technique often used on them by men. All the mythic versions of women, from the myth of the redeeming purity of the virgin to that of the healing, reconciling mother, are consolatory nonsenses. And consolatory nonsense seems to me a fair definition of myth anyway. Oh, man. Oh, that's cutting. It is cutting, isn't it? It's <laughs> My entire thesis about it's about <laughs> sacred feminine. Well, Angela Carter just shot your thesis and down. revisionism and deviance. It's also about deviance. But the thing is, is that it's interesting that she says this because a lot of her fiction still plays with those notions. And I was also going to say it's interesting that she says that because... You replace some of those words of the goddesses and things with sex work and pornography, and that's the same argument that a lot of other feminists yeah. would make about, you know, oh, women who believe in um, the empowerment of sex work are kidding themselves because it's. I mean, not Actually, that I necessarily agree with that, but I just I thought that that was an interesting thing that I thought of when I was listening to that just then. Interestingly enough, she does actually make that same comment 
in here. Right. She actually does talk about uh, the myth of empowerment. Specifically, she talks a bit about dominatrixes and Mm. that idea of female power through women having the upper hand or having sexual violence. She talks about that as a myth as well. But right. Um, but then she also says that power is with whoever holds the whip. Right? She does absolutely. So I think okay. So this is a thing, and also <laughs> having having read, um, I'll just do a quick little uh, spiel for uh, Mr. Edmund Gordon. Yeah, who, I haven't read this yet, but I'm really excited to. So uh, this biography of Angela Carter came out just in 2016, and I am unaware of any other biography of her that exists. Yeah. I think this is the first one. I I mean, there's various essays and short insights. Yeah, yeah. There is a lot about her and a lot written about her life, but in terms of a sort of comprehensive biography, Edmund Gordon's The Invention of Angela Carter is the first one that I've come across. So, yeah, I read this at the start of this year. And it's very, very interesting because I think that what, more than anything, what reading her biography has kind of made me feel about Angela Carter is that she's very much a flawed human being in that she can get a bit sort of flip-floppy, you know? Mm. Like there is... About her, her ideas. About her own ideas. I think sometimes yeah. ideas suit her to one purpose. Yeah. And, and yeah, she yeah, will yeah. use them to that purpose. And then other times she's on the opposite ends of the spectrum. This is something that the uh, the idea of an author being able to be flip floppy or an intellectual or a scholar being able to be flip floppy. This is something that I <laughs> I get really frustrated with quite often because there's a lot of criticism of particular authors and what they've written uh, where they'll say, oh, no, we have to disregard this entire body of work because this other thing which came earlier or this other thing mm. which came later contradicts it. I think that's pretty bullshit. You know, like I spent a lot of time uh, reading and writing about Jung and he's full of these kind of contradictions and you can't Disregard. dismiss the entire mm. work just because they exist. And I think it's the same. Angela Carter is a human being and her ideas evolved as she evolved as a person. Yeah. As we all do. Yeah. yeah. It is having those contradictions that actually makes her work so fascinating yeah because her work can be read and analyzed in a bunch of different ways Mm. you can analyze her work through a feminist lens you can analyze her work through an anti-feminist lens absolutely i think very much so you can do it either way you like so you can analyze her work through a socialist lens or through you know i mean this is what we do though we analyze all the lenses so i think that a lot of these different ideas come through in her fiction in different ways and it definitely does depend on what part of her entire body of work you're reading from. Her earlier work, I think a lot of that is about sort of developing sexuality. Yeah. And we were talking a bit about this before, about how some of her really early works are very much about young girls, mm-hmm. young women. Discovering and exploring their sexuality. Yeah. yeah. And in reading her biography, you can see why that is. Because in a lot of her early work, it correlates very much to her sort of burgeoning sexuality as a young woman as well. Mm. Um, Her biography seems to sort of posit this idea that she was a bit of a late bloomer in terms of actually interacting with the opposite sex. (laughs) And that by the time she did, she was like, oh my God, wow. This is a thing, mind blown. (laughs) Which is funny because when you read something like, say, The Magic Toy Shop, which was one of her early novels. I think that's late 60s, maybe 67, I want to say off the top of my head. The Magic Toy Shop, there is, oh, it's just most fantastic scene really early in the book, which I come back to again and again, where the protagonist Miranda is just in the garden. And there's actually nothing explicitly sexual about this scene where she's exploring. She's just out in the garden at night under the full moon wearing her mother's old wedding dress. Oh, there's so much symbolism in that. that. And that's the thing. It's full of a lot of symbolism. You know, she's out under the full moon. There's all these ethereal creatures around her and she's just in ecstasy. And there is that sense of discovery and a sense of utter joy. And like, I didn't know the world could be like this, Mm, mm. which also frightens her tremendously. But there's nothing sexual about it. She's not, you know, it's not like she's describing a scene where Miranda first learns to masturbate. You know, it's just this young girl in the garden, but it's so sexually charged at the same time. And it's drawing on all these ideas about what it does mean to be a young woman who's coming into 
her sexuality. And it, if you read just that, you kind of could feel like is Angela Carter the type of person who did have very early. So maybe maybe it is that maybe she had an early not an experience with the opposite sex. I don't know. I'm just kind of making things up now. Maybe you should read her biography. I will. For thirty nine fat. Whatever. I can't even remember. Uh, it was a gift, so I don't know how much it cost. It only just came out. It's so new. It is. It's sparkling. Haven't new. had time to get to it yet. And it's mammoth, but it's fascinating all the same. But I think that definitely that idea of developing sexuality is something that, as her fiction goes along, becomes less and less mm. part of the interest of her main characters, of her plots, of her narrative. Sexuality still remains a it does. center, but in a very different way. Mm, what kind of way? Okay, so when you read books like um, Infernal Design Machines and The Passion of New Eve, I've shortened those titles, there's an angry feminism in there. There's also a lot of sexual violence. A lot of sex, like difficult to read, kind of fucked up. Kind of? You're just going to say quite, kind of? Okay, yeah. In, no, quite fucked very up. Very fucked up. So for me, I actually discovered the first book of Angela Carter's that I read was The Infernal Desire Machines of Dr. Hoffman. Which would put a lot of people off. And so I would recommend if you're listening to this and you haven't read any Angela Carter, maybe don't read that book first. I, I first started with Knights at the Circus. That's a nice way to move into <laughs> Angela Carter. It's a nice introduction. It's a to, nice introduction. Yeah. It's a, it's, yeah. it's very lovely. There's circuses. Feathers is an aerialist. Some of it takes place in Siberia. There's clowns. It's, it's strange fun. and wonderful. It's fun. It's good. It's good time. Infernal design machines of Dr. Hoffman, not so much. <laughs> a lot of sexual violence. Yeah. So I would definitely recommend not starting there. And to be perfectly honest, that was the first book of hers that I've read. And it put me off of her for a little while. I'm not surprised. I didn't go back to reading anything by her for, for quite some time. And I think that's sort of from her middle years. This mm. is sort of now... Same with Passion of New Eve, right? Yeah, Passion of New Eve is 1977. Mm. So a good sort of 10 years after something like The Magic Toy Shop, um, a very different idea of sexuality, a very different idea of feminine archetypes. Yeah, very much so. And it is in these books that we find a lot more gendered and body-specific violence, if mm. that makes sense. Yeah. So something like The Passion of New Eve is a very fabulous sort of novel. A lot of magical and crazy things take place in it. It's the type of book that really, if you read it, it feels like a revenge book. It feels like angry woman revenge. And interestingly enough, that's not actually really what Angela Carter was driving at no. with it. Because she, without giving too much away about this particular I think we novel, can give, give it a little... We can say the plot. We can give like it a little the, bit away. the synopsis. So, yeah, so the there's, so there's an English man called Evelyn. He goes to America for a new job in New York. And this is, again, set in the, in the 70s, as, as we said before. And New York at this stage is just like a dystopian nightmare. It's falling apart. It's invaded by giant rats. So Evelyn has a very disastrous relationship with a woman that he meets there called Leela. And he sort of abandons her after some horribleness and drives out to the desert. In the desert, he's abducted by this uh, matriarchal cult, yeah. basically, that's headed by this enormously monstrous goddess. They kind of feel like a tribe of Amazonian women out in the desert. They are. Like, they are. Basically, yeah. That's, that's what exactly they are. That's what, what they she's are. playing yeah. with. And uh, they're headed by this monstrous godhead called Mother. The book is called The Passion of New Eve. They use Evelyn as a new Eve and they uh, basically give him an entire gender reconstruction surgery and turn Evelyn into a woman and turn mm. him into Eve, and they plan to impregnate Eve with his own sperm. Yeah. So while on the surface that plot might seem very revengey, very let's take this horrible man and let's just... Give him a dose of his own medicine. Yeah, let's just... How do you like being raped? How do you like being impregnated against your will? Exactly. Let's just turn the tables on him. Actually, sort of what Angela Carter is doing here is she's kind of making fun of this idea of the matriarchy as a solution. Because as it's an, the mother god. It is. So she's making fun of this idea, this 
notion that you could replace patriarchy with matriarchy, with matriarchy and everything's going to be fine. Yeah, you can't just do that because that is, of course, replacing one fucked up system with another fucked up system. Precisely. So that's kind of what she's doing here. She's not actually holding that up. She's not subscribing to that. Mm. She's not saying, isn't this fabulous? Yeah. This revenge. Look, if we if women run the world, men would be our slaves and we can <laughs> do whatever we want to them exactly. and we can make them feel the pain that we have felt for all these generations. So she's not... That's a- not what she's, she's doing. She's not actually saying that that's a great idea and but that's what we should do on a surface on you know i think a surface reading of that is definitely that that's what is there but really essentially and especially when we think about that idea in the sadian woman where she talks about mythic versions of women being sort of consolatory nonsense it's a lot clearer to me at least and i'm sure that there are scholars in the world who would disagree with me and argue with me about this but it seems to me that if you take that idea into account, then what she's actually doing here is she's holding up this idea of the matriarchy mm. as just as ridiculous. As everything else. Just as nonsensical as everything and yeah. anything else. And so I think, though, for that reason and perhaps because of the nature of the sexual violence that's described in that book, it's just not a great place to start. No, it's not. So <laughs> those two novels in particular, I think, The Passion of New Eve and The Infernal Desire Machines of Dr. Hoffman, which we haven't talked about too much, but I will just say centaur rape, basically. Yeah, that's just right. Centaur rape. That's actually the only thing I remember about that book <laughs> is centaur rape because it just stuck so vividly in my mind of like, what is this? Yeah, what is this? What so, I'm reading. Yeah, I remember, that's right. And I remember where I was when I read it. I remember sitting in my backyard in the <laughs> sun on my with my cushions and my picnic blanket. You thought you were like, in just for a nice story. What the fuck is this? Yeah, you thought you were just going to read a nice novel, yeah, but you were reading Centaur, right? Centaur, right? Yeah, maybe just... Look. Build up to those novels if you want to build up to them at all. But it's interesting in terms of the trajectory of her writing. Absolutely, the because way... those, those two novels sit sort of in the middle yeah. of her body of work. Yeah. So we've gone from this exploration of discovery and women coming into their sexuality in complicated ways, not just in a really kind of empowering, I'm a sexual being kind of a way, but in a way mm. that is fraught with all of the tensions and women as victims and women complicit in their victimhood and women who don't know how to enter into their sexuality and women who are frightened by their sexuality and all those kinds of things. And then moving through into sexual violence and this idea of replacing one system with another system and there's a lot of i think a lot of social commentary in those books as well absolutely and very much that social commentary is tied up with a lot of the kinds of rhetoric that existed at the time yeah in in terms of where women stood in the social structure yeah. the social hierarchy so that's very much the middle-ish years yeah. i would say of her fiction that sort of deal with that then when you get to sort of the early 80s mid 80s and 90s you move more into some different works so one of her most famous works which we haven't touched on yet i don't think we've mentioned no but if you haven't heard of angela carter then you may well still know of the bloody chamber yes which was a collection of short stories that she amend that with a delicious collection (laughs) delicious (laughs) collection of short stories in what year was the bloody chamber 79 79 so we're coming out of the sexual violence period and we're entering into a new phase of revisionism which is i think the real the heart of her revisionism is here late 70s into the 80s yeah so the bloody chamber takes all of those sort of key fairy tales yeah. and folklore. This is where her, her childhood really kind of comes into it again. Because she seems like an expert, like an absolute... Like she is so well-versed in fairy tale and in mythology and etc. <laughs> well, yeah. And when she was young, she was born in 1940. Her early years of her life, she was sent away from London with so many other children to... Um, escape the Blitz, and yep. she lived with her grandmother. Like the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. <laughs> Just like the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. How did I know you were going to bring it back to that? <laughs> um, so she was sent away to live with her grandmother, and her grandmother was the kind of woman who was full of these stories, the folklores and the legends and the local tales. Yeah. And she sort of filled Angela's head with all of these 
great creative stories yeah. and imaginings. And this is what she comes back to when she writes The Bloody Chamber. She yeah. comes back to these kind of folk tales of her youth. But she comes back to them to rewrite them. Yeah, absolutely. She puts these female characters at the centre, but at the centre in complicated ways. Yeah, so they're not just those strong female characters. Yeah. yeah. So the title story, The Bloody Chamber, which is one of these stories that I come back to when I read again and again and again. I think it's probably... A lot of Angela Carter you come back to. Oh, the passage in The Magic, the Magic Toy, Toy, Shop. Toy Shop and The Bloody Chamber are the Angela Carter that I've read the most. Okay. And The Bloody Chamber itself is a reworking of a very fundamental sort of fairy tale. Mm. Um, I was going to say that it's it's actually not a very famous It's not. And that's fairy because tale. it's not a Grimm's one. It's not a Hans Christian Andersen. It's Perot. It's Perot. So mm. it's not Perot, the Agatha Christie detective. No. Charles Perot. Yeah, that's right. The French... Fairy tailist. Fairy tailist. <laughs> he was. And he came, before, he came before Grimm and he came before um, Hans. Yeah, Christian absolutely. Anderson. And um, he's actually the one who first wrote down Cinderella as yes, well. Yes, that's right. So, and um, Little Red Riding Hood. And, and Little Red Riding Hood. Puss in Boots. So, oft forgotten. So, people don't necessarily know the story of Bluebeard, but I think that they are familiar with the type of character that Bluebeard, Bluebeard, Bluebeard. is. Bluebeard. Bluebeard. The type of character that Bluebeard is, and that the the mythology of the locked and hidden chamber that you are. Absolutely. The, the secret. It's a Pandora's box mm-hmm. story. Yeah. It is. So, for those of you who don't know Bluebeard, it is. Or Pandora's box. Or Pandora's box, which hopefully you know one of them. It's basically a story of um, female curiosity. Yeah. Um, it's about Bluebeard marries for the millionth time, young, virginal, pretty woman, says they get to their castle and he's like, here, do all the things. Have these keys. Don't enter this room. Just don't enter this room. You've it's got terrible. This, you've got this enormous thing of keys and you can use all the keys on any of the rooms except this one key on this one room. Yeah, please do not enter. Oh, Eve. Oh, the Garden of Eden. Yeah, that's Don't right. eat that fruit. Yep. Here we go, all over again. So, of course, what does she do? Of course, she enters the fucking room. She unlocks the door. She unlocks the door. She's curious. She goes in and finds the remains of the previous wives and so really what it is is it's a that typical kind of female quest for knowledge yeah forbidden knowledge knowledge that women aren't allowed to have so of course we then we can read into that all sorts of symbolism about the various multitudinous types of knowledge that women aren't allowed to have <laughs> and how that knowledge is going to be ultimately your downfall your downfall because what happens in that particular story is the key becomes stained by the blood of the ex-wives of the ex-wives in various torture equipment and but i don't know if i just imagined that into it or if the torture chamber that's in carter's version that's in carter's version, that's in carter's version. <laughs> and the key now covered in blood that cannot be wiped off mm. oh, oh can't wipe it off i'm just seeing lady Macbeth with her yeah hands. that's right out of spot <laughs> will be her undoing because when he comes home and he asks for his keys back oh fuck why is this key covered in blood evidently you've opened the room yeah and in the original version that's an unfortunate way for things to end well it is and it isn't because okay so firstly i just want to say when we're talking about female curiosity of course the main thing that we're talking about here and of course carter is talking about here is female sexuality Blood on the key is evidence of, you know, the blood, the virginal blood, symbolic of sexual knowledge, the ultimate deviant knowledge for women to have. Dun, dun, um, dun. Dun, dun, dun. So there's that. But secondly, she gets out. She does. She does get out. She is miraculously saved by her four brothers, who for some reason decide to turn up at that to point. turn up at the exact right moment when mm. she's out. But she's there's a little bit of a, her own agency here because she begs and she pleads for this moment to say her prayers and atone before he murders her. And so for some reason she kind of knows that in there's this a window, time, there's this a window, window of opportunity. The, yeah, so she's atoning. Meanwhile, the brothers come along and rescue her. So she actually gets out. And that's interesting in this case because she's the one who gets the happy ending, not Bluebeard. Um, now, all of Perot's 
fairy tales end with a moral. You may know that. Yes, but as I was saying, I don't think he actually did that. I think that the morals were added in translation later. Which I think is very interesting because I don't think that the moral quite fits the story. Mm. And Something yeah. lost in translation, perhaps. I think that but, there's two ways to read the moral. Okay, so the moral. What's the moral? So the moral given? is, okay. O curiosity, thou mortal bane, spite of thy charms, thou causest often pain and sore regret, of which we daily find a thousand instances attend mankind. For thou, or may it not displease the fair, a fleeting pleasure art, but lasting care, and always proves, alas, too dear the prize, which in the moment of possession dies. So the moral's about the dangers of curiosity, about how it may seem like it's going to be worth it, but it, it never is. Just, you know, stay away. Curiosity is a mortal bane. You know, it's the, the curiosity killed the cat, the Pandora's box, the Eve bringing destruction on mankind. That's the moral. Interesting, though, because there are two characters who exhibit curiosity in this. Of course... That's right. It's not just her. No. Bluebeard is also curious because what he's doing is he's testing he's her He's testing her he's testing her when he gives her the key he's he wants to know whether or not she's going to take the bait he wants to know whether or not she is a worthy wife so he's just as guilty of curiosity as she is by planting this he's um, trolling test. her and in Daisy. the end it's him that ends up dead not her That's... he's the one who's punished for his curiosity not her so that's my feminist revisionist take on the morality story of Bluebeard. Well, but I know that a lot of people would disagree with me about that. But Carter does a different version. She because does. Because we haven't been talking about Carter's version of that no, story. No, we want to use that to now talk about Carter's Because the version. way that Carter changes that is the sort of the way that she is said that the wife, the new wife is saved is not from her four brothers. No, it isn't. But from her mother. Yes. Who comes riding in. On a horse. On guns are blazing. Guns are blazing. Like a lady cowboy. That's right. Right at the exact moment, the moment. when she is about to be killed mm. and saves her. So there is a little bit of that mother archetypal yeah. like, stuff that Carter rejects Carter, in other ways. But it's, of course, it's an empowering like flip. But the other important thing about this in terms of the curiosity aspect, and of course I said the curiosity relates to sexuality because it always does. The Bloody Tower is like dripping in sexual symbolism. Dripping. Dripping in mm-hmm. sexual symbolism. It's everywhere. Mm-hmm. It's a chamber. It's a bloody chamber. <laughs> it's literally a bloody what chamber. What do you think that is? <laughs> hey, what do you think that the is? virginal blood. So there's a lot of other reworkings in the bloody chamber. And I was sorry, I also just wanted to say, but... In terms of the sexual curiosity, here we have an additional character. Um, Carter has introduced the blind pianist. Ah, Remember the blind oh pianist? Oh my god, I had forgotten the blind pianist. Yes. <gasps> okay, so I'm going to take us to some Freud here. Oh, please, I've been waiting <laughs> do you know what? Do you know with bated breath. You know what? According to Freud, blindness in literature is symbolic of the castration complex. Of course it is, Freud. And so I don't want to assume anything. <laughs> But, I mean, when I read The Bloody Chamber, I was like, if Angela Carter is playing on that idea of blindness and male potency, because that means that this blind pianist, he's another reversal of archetypal male characters in fairy tales. Well, it's interesting you should say that because Angela Carter read a lot of Freud. I I had a feeling that yeah, she may have. She did. She did read a lot of Freud. Absolutely. Yeah. And a bit of Jung as well. Yeah. But, but I think that the Freudian symbolism can't be ignored there. She's actually one of the things that Carter but does. I see Freudian symbolism everywhere. So. Yeah, well, that's your own problem. <laughs> um, one of the things that Carter does quite often is in her fiction, and this is something that I think I've probably picked up more in The Passion of New Eve than anywhere else because I've studied The Passion of New Eve for purposes. Um, so I've, I've pulled it apart. Mysterious purposes. <laughs> for mysterious purposes. For reasons. I've studied it for reasons. Um, that she drops in little sentences here and there that are not her own. Yeah, she does. They are she? just pulled from elsewhere yeah, yeah. and inserted. And sometimes she just drops a line of Freud or she just drops a line of Plato or she drops a line of some random thing that if you haven't read it, then you 
wouldn't know and you just be like, blah, 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 blah. But if you have read those theorists yeah. or read those authors, then you're like, hello, yeah. hello line taken directly and inserted here. But, okay, so where's the line between intertextuality and plagiarism? I feel like that's just an intertextual reference. That's okay. there for well, the, I feel it's also plagiarism. But it's there for the savvy audience. So they know, they, they pick up on that. She's not pretending. Mm. So coming back to the blind piano tuner, I think the idea of the deviance and the reworking of that Bluebeard myth that I was talking about and the picking up on those ideas of female curiosity um, and, of course, the sexual innuendo of that is that in the bloody chamber, of course, we've got this additional character who is an object of he's not even really an object of her desire because it's, Mm. I think it's a lot subtler than that, but it adds an extra dimension in, and cause she ends up marrying him, this wife. And so, sorry, spoiler alert. Um, but (laughs) we already gave away the whole thing. It's a short story. It's fine. She does end up marrying him. And so she kind of is able to have a kind of different happy ending because so much of that short story is about her, exploration of her sexuality in the same way that I think the magic toy shop is is playing with the ideas of the young virginal woman coming into an emerging quite kind of like spectacularly and frighteningly yeah, shocking quite shockingly shocking there's a lot of fear yeah. involved in this coming into the sexuality yeah um a lot of unsurety because it unsurety un- unsurety is that a word it is now okay unsurety unsurety there are unsure of the way that they come into their sexuality and that is pl- i think that she's really making a lot of social commentary with that because of the fact that it's I guess in the 60s and 70s, it was only just becoming normal for people to talk about girls' sexuality. Well, I think this is also a bit of biographical as well because she had that. That's pretty much Mm. as it sort of appears in her biographical data anyway. She had a lot of trouble coming to sexuality Mm. as well. Like it was a sort of a, not a stilted, but something that, didn't really happen until marriage yeah. for her. Mm. Um, and she was married a couple of times. So it was something that she found out in a very sort of traditional fashion. I yeah, think. yeah. And I think that she's doing a lot of like breaking down of the shame, like taboos of shame and playing with that idea of obviously she felt shame. Or maybe I'm reading biographically into the her fiction, but her fictional characters certainly battle with the idea of wanting to be able to explore their sexuality but feeling restrained and feeling shame and feeling fear because it's not openly talked about the sexuality Mm. of young girls is still not talked about in the way that the sexuality of young boys is talked about and so it is definitely a journey of her characters that feels probably very familiar to a lot of people yeah it felt very like maybe that's why i felt so attached to that scene in yeah the magic toy shop of Miranda because it is such a familiar sense of exhilaration and fear mm. and shame and something weird and that's why those things are taboo yeah that's why they become that way yep mm. fascinating so Lauren. her fiction kind of does this like if we're thinking about the way that over time she's moved through fiction by the time she gets to fairy tales and she's reworking the fairy tales i think she's reworking them in a way that's maybe even more conscious of these ideas than she did in her earlier and i think the other thing is that by this point in her life she's also lived in a few different places and she spent some time living in japan yeah and she had quite um an interesting romantic experience in japan didn't she yeah she had a couple of romantic affairs in japan and she's also, by her later life, she's lived in America for a bit as well. She's also lived in... Australia! Well, more in so. Adelaide. She's lived in our hometown of Adelaide. Yeah. When I was like a baby, she was here. She sure did. So I may have walked past her in the street. I may you have never toddled. I may have been pushed past her in a pram in the street. <laughs> and so I think there's something else that is playing into this as well, is the fact that her notions of femininity that she grew up with in that sort of conservative English society have also been tempered a bit by the way that she's seen other societies' views of femininity as well. And so she's starting to take into account different racial modes Mm. of femininity. It's Mm -hmm. no longer just this white Western 
woman gaze that she's using. That gaze is shifting and changing and she's taking into account the fact that sexuality is not this universal thing. Yeah. I think we can see that coming through not just in the way that she reworks a lot of fairy tales because the fairy tales that she rewrites mostly are those Western Western, fairy tales. Western, French, German, Mm. English Mm. stories. But then she puts together this sort of much broader collection of fairy tales. Yeah, because she's also very, very famous. I mean, I I didn't actually read it, but I first came across the name Angela Carter as the editor of Angela Carter's book of fairy tales. That's um, right, which are not fairy tales that she's written. She's an editor. She's collected she's them. She's collected them she's together. She's curated them. She has. She's the curator. So there is a massive array of fairy tales and they go above and beyond that sort of Grimm's Brothers key little mm. cauldron of fairy tales yeah. that we refer to. There are Chinese fairy tales. Yep. Swahili fairy tales. Yeah. Yep. So there's... Lettish fairy tales. There's a, a massive uh, global view that yeah. she's now taking on board in terms of how all of these ideas feed into the stories that we tell Mm. and the stories that we build our social structures upon. Yeah, and she's very much taken, and I did use the word curator quite purposefully because the way that she's put the collection together um, and the way that she's grouped these stories together, they're still a kind of feminine focused, but, you know, she's got groups like Good Girls and Where It Gets Them. And there's a few stories in there. And there's witches. And there's then What there's, stories are in the witches section? Uh, the Chinese princess. Oh, yeah. The cat witch. Yep. The Baba Yaga. And Mrs. Number Three. Oh, yeah. Baba Yaga. We've got to talk about her some more in the future. Mm, mm. Yes. Yes. And the various myths attached to her. So I do think that this is shows that kind of trajectory of how she's moved forward as an author, the different Mm. things that she's taking on board now, the different ways she's considering things in terms of class, in terms of gender, in terms of race. All these sorts of things feed much much more into her fiction now. And so we're getting towards the end of her life now as well. Yeah, because she was working on this edition um, of fairy tales when she was in hospital. Yes, so she passed away in 1992 yeah that's right at the age of 51 so she was quite young so this again was the same thing that we were talking about with old mate izzy Mm. about imagine if she'd lived on and all the other kinds of fiction that we might have by now including the adele novel i know i think about this all this is really i don't know if this makes me a bit weird but i often think about this and get really sad about it where i think (laughs) i think you should let it go imagine what else angela carter could have given us had she lived another 30 years i think it's fine just let it go man it's all good (laughs) but think about what she'd be writing in the current feminist climate the current feminist climate. I yeah. like that. That sounds great. Well, feminism has researched I'd... in the last really, I mean, not that I'm saying it ever went away, but there's definitely a resurgence I would in be... the wake of various political things that are going on. <laughs> various unnamed political things that various we're not going to delve into right now. <laughs> but I think that what this does tend to do is it kind of really tempers the fiction from the very end of her life. Yeah. And the last few novels that we get from her a far less violent they're really magical actually yeah. i think they're really a lot more joyful in a weird way because they're not completely joyful but they have a, a more of a sense of wonder they're quite carnivalesque and they're quite like knights of the circus and and wise children are very different books very different books from dr hoffman and new eve yeah yeah or even from something like love or yeah heroes and villains or any of her Mm -hmm. magic toy shop early fiction and the main characters of wise children are two old ladies yeah yeah so it's a a very different sort of gone her virgins but as you say though it is quite tragic that we didn't get to see she can't give us more i want more she can't give us adele and i'm gonna be honest i haven't finished reading everything that Angela Carter has written. And the reason for that is that I'm like savoring them. I like knowing <laughs> that there's still new That's Angela true. Carter to come. Just like to see them there and to be like, I'm going to get to you one day. <laughs> there are things left. You're going to delight me. But That's I also really want to reread Knights of the Circus because that was the first one that I read. And I feel like reading it again, having the over of, of yeah. Angela Carter mm-hmm. that I have now, 
um, I think I'll read it in quite a different way. And there's a fair bit of nonfiction as well. There's yeah. her essays. There's Nothing Sacred, which is a collection of her essays. There's bits and pieces around the place to read still. If, hopefully, uh, if you haven't read Angela Carter before, then what we have managed to achieve today is giving you an intense desire to run out and buy some Angela Carter. I hope so, because I don't know if you can tell. Don't know if this comes across, but... Don't know if it's clear. We're both pretty big fans. We kind of like her. We kind of really like her a lot. I don't know. Maybe that wasn't clear. (laughs) Maybe it wasn't clear. But if it wasn't, we'll tell you now, Angela Carter is ace. (laughs) She is our favourite. Well, she's She's my favourite. I think she's one of my favourites. Yeah. One of. Yeah, for sure. Top three. Top three! Yeah. Oh, well, don't tell us the other two at the moment because who knows, in the future we may come back I bet, to I mean, it rotates, so yeah. at the moment she's top three. But Sweet. who knows, in a few months it might be different. Who can say? No one it's can a, say. It's Nobody a, knows. It's a mystery. I think it's around about time we wrap up our uh, number four. Number four. Huzzah. So, do we have any clues or hints for next time round? Okay. I think next time we're going to... We're, we're going back in history again. Are we going back to the 1800s? we're not going back to the 1800s. We're going to go back even further. To when? The mist of time. Um, we're going to go back to the 1600s. Are we? Yeah. I think we are. All right, cool. Now we are because I've said it. Yeah, yeah. So now we have to. So where geographically do you think we might end geographically, up? Geographically, we are going to be in North America. <gasps> North America. And we're going to be in both the realms. We're going to be on Straddling. two horses. So we've got two horses. Okay. We've got one, a leg on each horse. A leg on each horse. One of those horses is history. One of those horses is literature. We've got a woman <gasps> The horse of literature and exists. the horse of history. In both realms. I like these horses. They're great horses. So let's ride some horses next week. <laughs> next week. Well, in next fortnight. We keep saying next, next week. Fortnight. But it's next fortnight. So if this was the first time you've listened to us babble about things. Then welcome. Then welcome. And go back and listen to us babble about other things. Yeah, we've got, who have we got? Florence Cook, Isabel Eberhardt. And Bertha Mason. Bertha Mason. And you can do that on our little website www.deviantwomenpodcast.com and you can find us on iTunes or yeah and if you're on iTunes please like review and rate and subscribe yeah leave a review but you know what also as my mum always said if you don't have anything nice to say don't say anything at all so if you want to leave five star reviews please (laughs) do or three and a half would be acceptable share us we're on Facebook we're on Twitter, but we don't use it enough. We should, <laughs> we should start we tweeting. We are terrible at social media, we're so we should up that. We should, we're going to do better. We promise we're uh, going to do better we with will. social medias. And thank you to our sound man. Sound guy, Brendan Davies. Music by India Hui. Thank you very much, and we'll see you next time. See you next time, guys. Auf Wiedersehen. Bye.